Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Well, it's summertime, and there's no better time to do a bit of reflection, turn off the Zoom meetings, and dig into some good books. So that's why this episode is all about summer reads. Joining me is Nick Lichtenberg. He's the executive editor of News at Fortune Magazine, and he's here to talk about books to add to your summer reading list. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hi, nice to be here. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm excited to get some recommendations on summer reading. First, before we start, tell me a little bit about what you do at Fortune, how you get to read books all the time, and give us a little insight there. Yeah, so I'm the executive editor for news at Fortune, and really means that I'm spearheading the digital side of our news coverage on a daily basis. And I run the team that looks at everything that's breaking on a given day and asks, what is the Fortune reader really going to care about having instant news on? And how can we put these big questions into context for people? And uh, we try to do that as well as we can every day. And uh, frankly, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, business stories are are very popular from the WeWork story to so many others. There's shows and, you know, all kinds of stuff out there. So, but reading those stories is still great and great to do when relaxing on the beach. So let's jump into the first book. This is The Power Law, which is a history of venture capital. So give us a little synopsis. What's this book all about? Yeah, so I first became aware of this author several years back when he wrote a book with an amazing title. It was uh, More Money Than God, <laughs> and that's a, <laughs> a history of the hedge fund industry. And mm-hmm. uh, you get to meet George Soros and Julian Robertson, and it's kind of like a greatest hits of hedge funds uh, past 50 years or so. And so I saw he was doing a similar thing for venture capital with this book, and I got really excited. You get to be there at the beginning with uh, with Kleiner Perkins and Andreas and Horowitz, and you get to meet Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Mark Zuckerberg along the way. But you also go Mm -hmm. back to the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so it's a really fun look back, but it also is very relevant today because so many of our biggest companies got their start in venture capital. Yeah. And, you know, it was an interesting perspective about how venture capital really drives not just innovation, but disruption and business as a whole. There's kind of an argument within the book of without this kind of, you know, pushing the envelope, you know, venture capital that we would not have so many of the innovations that we have now and that it's an incredible net positive. There's another side of that argument of what can go wrong with venture capital as well. But what was your take on that takeaway? Yes, I mean, the the, the title, The Power Law, might be a little mystifying, but it is a, an important idea, which is uh, what I took away is that we live really in a hit-based world. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's hit singles and music. Um, There's hit TV shows um, and the whole uh, insight that VCs had back in the 70s and before was that um, if they could have one hit, it would more than pay for the next uh, 20 misses that they would make investments on. Mm -hmm. So it explains a lot of behavior in business when you think about these VCs being targeted on what is the real hit idea that's just going to take off and explode. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of results in... There's something in economics called the superstar effect, which they usually use Michael Jordan to demonstrate, where Michael Jordan might have been 20% better than all of the peers he had in basketball, but he was able to uh, realize such a bigger salary and endorsement deal and become world famous. And 
VCs also kind of created a superstar effect across the whole the whole economy, and that's it's a top heavy structure. So you end up with you know you, Yahoo was a big uh, part of the story in the '90s, but then Google came along a few years later, right. and uh, Yahoo was known for search at the beginning, and Google then completely dominated search with a better with better technology. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you want to happen in a capitalist system, but it also can lead to real dominant players, and that can get that can get unhealthy too. You know, it's interesting. We've had all these, you know, privately held unicorns has been a big thing over the past few years, and they're taking a hit right now for sure, as is even the old players, which those fast-moving startups are now sort of blue chips. Uh, but it doesn't seem like there's quite the same energy or or disruption and transformation happening. Maybe it's happening in the Web3 world, but that still seems kind of nascent. I'm curious, thinking about your day-to-day business coverage, are, are you seeing a change in how that's played out over time? Yeah, definitely. Uh, part of the book that really stuck out to me was, um, I think it's well known in, in uh, the financial press, but it would definitely be news to some people who are going to read this, that Bill Gurley was a, a partner at Benchmark and they were an early investor in Uber. And then he really fought hard when he thought Travis Kalanick was getting too much power and was sidelining his early VC investors. He was urging them to actually IPO and not be such a unicorn. And he, mm-hmm. he, was, uh, he wrote famous blog posts and he had like a PowerPoint that he uh, put online that made big waves in the valley. And he was saying, no, the point is that um, you should be going public by now and then the market will reveal the true nature of this business. He thought it was unhealthy for the firm to go too long without going public. So there's a lot of voices in the book that are saying VC is great, but unicorns should should go public before they're, you know, there shouldn't be such a thing as a 10-year unicorn. Um, and, right. then, you know, we've been reporting on some of the revelations about Uber that just came out this week. And I, I think VC is, is a part of the marketplace, and that comes through in this book, too. And VC mm-hmm victim of its own success when all these other investors came in that wanted to keep firms uh, private for a long time because there was a, an outside yeah. return. You know, and I think Sebastian Malavia also points out the, you know, challenges with monoculture and lack of diversity. You know, there's a breakdown of where are VC partners from, you know, what's the, what's the background, what's, you know, their ethnicity, et cetera. And, you know, you really see just the needle has not really moved on on who's there and the diversity and inclusion in those spaces. Um, and that hasn't changed a lot. So I, I think that's a challenge that VCs need to need to think about moving forward. Yeah, he definitely mentions it in his conclusion to the book, but that you could say that he can highlight um, earlier on how it's a very it's a very white male culture that he's that he's profiling for the most part. Okay, so let's transition from the world of VC to a much bigger world of uh, the Federal Reserve Bank and the Lords of Easy Money, which is another great title uh, that gives a history of the Federal Reserve from a little bit of a contrarian perspective. Tell me a little bit about this book. Yeah, it's definitely a contrarian perspective. I mean, the narrative that we've had uh, going back to 2008 or so is that the Federal Reserve saved the world and they saved the economy when... uh, it seemed that all hope was lost around 2008 and around 2020 as well. But this book tells the story of one central banker who gave uh, a ton of access to, uh, to the author. And the, uh, the banker was named Thomas Hingnig, and he was at the 
Kansas City Fed from 1991 through 2011. And a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, will know that that was that overlapped a lot with the Alan Greenspan tenure um, when mm-hmm. remember the the great moderation of the 90s and a little bit of irrational exuberance, but overall great stock markets in the 90s. And Hunig was the, the lone standout who kept on saying Greenspan is too liberal with low interest rates. And and uh, you learn a lot about Hunig's background, how he grew up in Iowa, and then spent a lot of his time in the Midwest uh, working in banks that gave out loans to farmers. And it was very like, very this all-American uh, story about uh, kind of being fiscally responsible and paying your bills. And once he got to the uh, to the Federal Reserve, he had the same philosophy. And he said, I just think we're printing too much money that isn't real, and the economy mm-hmm. is getting too distorted by this. And so mm-hmm. um, we should we should basically let let more things fail because then the economy will have fewer bubbles in it. And mm-hmm. it's a it's old school contrarian take on central banking, but it's a very uh, I would say it's persuasive at times, and it's, it's definitely a valid viewpoint that you should consider. It's always good to consider, um, like, the less heralded or the kind of the retro old school take on things. Well, it's certainly relevant right now with what's happening with interest rates and uh, the impacts of pumping all of that money into the economy. And I thought what was so fascinating was the mechanics of how this money actually gets injected into the economy, where you have a few of these big, powerful banks who say, yeah, you know, I'll buy, you know, $100 million of treasuries. And it's a few keystrokes. And all of a sudden, there's another huge tranche of money that's created. So it was really fascinating to see, you know, just at the ground level, how this really happens. Yeah. I mean, it reminded me of the famous quote by, uh, by JK Galbraith, the economist. He said once, um, the process by which banks create money is so simple that the mind is repelled. <laughs> you could create on a keystroke and then money exists where it didn't used to. Um, but I would say this, this book reminded me we're seeing recent research, like the kind of work we do at Fortune every day, we read a lot of economic research and we kind of try to find ways to connect it to people's lives. And everyone wonders right now, why is inflation so out of control and mm-hmm. what's happening in the world to make inflation just come back like this? And mm-hmm. there's a lot of new research that said, you know, globalization that ran from the 1970s through maybe 2020 might be ending and globalization made stuff really cheap. And that also coincides with a lot of the period of this book when interest rates were low, but that's because we lived in a globalized world um, that brought down the cost of everything. It was really right. easy to ship goods between China and the U.S. and uh, supply chains were super integrated. Um, and so that world might be ending, but then um, you have to get used to higher interest rates in a, in a less globalized, more expensive world. Um, and you know, even going back to Paul Volcker, who raised interest rates to past 10 percent to kill inflation, it could mm-hmm. have been globalization that was also bringing inflation down at the same time. So mm-hmm. how much does the central bank really control? It's, it's kind of a it's kind of a scary thought, right? Like uh, this, this stuff just might be beyond the control of the people who we think are like the title of this book says, the lords of easy money. Mm-hmm. The lords of mm-hmm. money can't control so much. Some of the really interesting stuff in the book is around Bernanke and Hayneg and their interactions at the meetings. And it seems like there was a little bit of politicking going on there, too. Yeah, I mean, 
It's more of like an inside look at Federal Reserve drama than you yeah. get in places. So if, you, if you're at all interested in that sort of thing, or even if you're not, you should definitely check it out. The soap opera of the Federal Reserve. Who, who, who could have guessed it? Okay, now let's move on to another book that's really topical right now. It's The Nowhere Office with Julia Hobswim. And uh, this is all about the future of work and where we're going to be working and how we're going to be working and the new digital HQ and something that's uh, you know important to all of us and impacted our everyday work life. Uh, she's got some great insights and talked to a lot of people in this book. So you get a lot of different perspectives from different regions, different industries. It's kind of a before and after story. Um, and so give us your take on this one. Yeah, and so I think some readers out there will recognize her last name. Her dad was actually a famous historian who I I first encountered late in college, and he was famous for his theory about the, the long 19th century, which he put at like the French Revolution, American Revolution period, and ending at World War One. And what I like about this book, uh, not to compare her too flippantly to her dad, you know, she she's published a lot on the future of work and uh, and office culture and. She's really been writing on this space for a long time, but she does a similar trick where she has four distinct periods of office life since World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, she argues pretty persuasively that we are moving right into a new one. I mean, she's really the perfect person to write about this at this moment because uh, she's been preparing for it for, for years. I mean, we all know how much office culture changed in 2020 with the pandemic. Uh, but she also mentioned Studs Terkel, who uh, interviewed a lot of people during the Great Depression. He did all these great oral histories. I think he might have invented the oral history. And she does something kind of like that in this book. She talks to like 60, 70, 80 people, I think. And she gets all these different perspectives on on how work culture is going to change. And she talks to Gen Zers all the way up to to executives. And mm-hmm. um I think she makes she made me realize reading the book that you know the office was not one thing from 1945 through 2020. Like there were many different stages and key turning points, and um, you know going to an office in the 50s was different from the 70s, different from the 90s, and now it's different, uh, uh, obviously different today. And that there was a key cultural and, and mindset shift for each of those periods, and uh, we're basically never going back to the 2019 world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the reference to Studs Terkel. Who, if any, if you haven't checked that out, YouTube it and listen to some of these interviews about he did this series on working and spoke to all kinds of different uh, people about their jobs, everyday people, and uh, and it, it's fascinating. And his his voice and style is really amazing. So um, great to be able to plug him a little bit. But yeah, I think what you said about the mind shift is so important because it, it really is a different mind shift. One thing that jumps out from the book that's definitely true in my experience from hybrid work is that what, that work is really about the work more than it ever has been and not all the other rituals that we had of commuting. And, you know, in New York, you stop by your coffee cart and uh, you get your coffee in like the blue, uh, like Greek uh, themed uh, coffee yeah. cup. Just yeah. all those rituals are gone. And mm-hmm. you get up and you open your laptop and you start working. And then when you go in, you're you're trying to to meet with people and you're trying to have sort of team meetings that are in person or even off the record conversations with people. Uh, and that's what the purpose of going into the office has become. 
So you're seeing a real bifurcation of one kind of work from another kind of work, at least in the, the white collar space. Yeah. Um, so I've definitely, I've definitely experienced that, the mindset. Shift. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating topic. And uh, she also talks about that offices will be more like university or social clubs or, you know, taking on this new role and a, and a new almost social kind of function, uh, which, which I think is, I think is true, but it's, you're still going to have to draw people in, in ways that I'm not sure folks have figured out yet. I think that's right. Because the office is still set up for the 2019 world. And right. uh, it's not like there's a, there's, there's probably too few conference rooms in all of these offices that we're going into now. What's mm -hmm. the point that we go and hang out in person with someone for one or two days a week when we actually want to commute? Right. It was funny because I went to the office and I met a colleague there and it was just the two of us on this floor. You know, it's pretty much empty and just the two of us. But when we met to talk with each other, we still went into a conference room to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so the conference room isn't dead yet. Yeah. The key question that Julia asks in the book is like, why do you guys as business leaders really want workers back in the office? Right. We all do Job, right and that's a question that's been asked of me as a as a manager and as an executive and, and i am forced to say you know the job is the thing that matters right uh, we're here to we're here to work and um as long as the work is good that should be the main the main consideration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that you know that what you hear is you don't have the serendipitous connections you don't have the same level of spark and creativity that happens when you're together. And I, and I do think some of that is true, but a lot of it comes down to personal style. And, and maybe that's when you're talking about this adaptation that's going to happen over decades or, you know, a longer period of time, it's going to play out in how people are comfortable. There are people who've been working remotely for a long time. They're very comfortable with that. They know how to make the connections needed to make that work and maybe not as comfortable in an office situation in the physical space. Some people are very happy that way. I think in the same way that one used to have to learn to navigate a physical office, we're going to have to figure out how to navigate this hybrid world. And people are going to have to develop skills to be able to, to do that. Yeah. And I think intentionality is important where you're going to have to yeah. set up a digital coffee with someone to kind of like get in their face on a, on a laptop and get to know them for about 30 minutes a week and, yeah. you know, hang out productively with, uh, with your team members. That's going to be a new skill I think we're all going to have to develop. And yeah, absolutely. She definitely, she definitely hits on that a lot. I and mean, she's, she has a lot of interviews with Gen Zers and young millennials who say that that's what they really want. They, they want to have the work-life separation, but then they want their companies to meet them where they are too. Right. Well, any managers or anybody out there who's trying to figure this out, check out this book. It's got a lot of great information and insight from so many different people that she's talked to. There's, there's a lot of great thought starters there. Okay. Let's change direction here a little bit and talk about something that's really fun, which is some eighties basketball, uh, with a book called blood in the garden. It's all about the New York Knicks and Pat Riley and that team, which I remember if I'm dating myself here a little bit, but, uh, it's a great read. It's a page turner. It's really fun. So Nick, tell me why you're recommending this book. You know, I think a lot of people watch this this hit show on uh, HBO called Winning Time, which was a loose adaptation. Some said too loose of uh, 
of a great, uh, another great sports book from a few years back by Jeff Perlman about the, the Lakers who were coached by Pat Riley. And this book is kind of a sequel to that because Pat Riley left LA to come to New York in the early nineties. And mm-hmm. unlike the Lakers who were, uh, who were elegant and, uh, um, uh, sort of artful with their basketball. The the New York Knicks of the early 90s had great skill on, on the team, but they were also just one of the scariest and most ferocious uh, teams that ever played basketball. And so there's a lot of story of all the blood and guts they spilled in the 90s under Pat Riley's coaching. And mm-hmm. I remember playing for that team as a, as a kid. And I this is the kind of book I always dreamed about reading, like the inside look at what it was really like. Uh, there's one great story about how the team, one of the team's key players wanted to bring his uh, wife along on uh, on a playoff trip. And Pat Riley was saying, no wives or girlfriends allowed in the team, the team bonding exercise. And he said, really? Like, my, this is my family. I want to bring them. And so Pat Riley kicked him off the team for a stretch of, uh, of the playoffs and that they might have lost the championship because of how uncompromising uh, the coaching was and how tough the culture was. And mm-hmm. that's another amazing anecdote about how uh, Pat Riley dunks his head into a, uh, a bucket of ice in the locker room and uh, all the players start looking around and asking themselves, like, is, what's going on? Did Pat die in there or something? Like, is he going to be all right? And then he, he lifts his head out of the ice and it's like bright red and he's saying, that's the kind of intensity you have to go play with. So it's definitely uh, a fun read with lots of great stories like that, but it's also thought-provoking, I suppose, and how you want to motivate your team if you're mm-hmm. thinking about it from, uh, from a management perspective. Uh, but I, I think there's a ton of Knicks fans out there who will just, like, uh, they'll love every word of this book. It's, it's got some great stories. And you know what's interesting is, so Riley had been with the Lakers before this and won championships there, and he really didn't architect, but executed that Showtime kind of offense and just a totally different style than what the Knicks were playing. And so it's interesting that for him, he, he was in one environment with a set of players and in a division and et cetera, that was going to work a certain way. And he coached it that way. And then he came to the Knicks and said, this is a different, this is the Eastern conference. These are the players we had. This is what we have to build to be successful here. Uh, and he was able to adapt and, uh, and bring that style. Um, a bruising style for sure. There's some great anecdotes about the what he had the players do in practice to try to get them going. So it's some great stuff. Yeah, and he he was also working with very different uh, players, and he he suited right. his coaching to their strengths. I mean, uh, Patrick Ewing was this uh, this legendary figure, um, and he didn't have a sort of a uh, a second all-time great on the team that could um, that that was like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to the to the Magic Johnson. So right, that really built this. Um, I'm saying Pat like I know him like firsthand, but he, <laughs> he built this incredible culture that is really uh, that's really vibrant. And there's there's lots of great interviews with Dave Checkets, who was the president of the team, yeah, who uh, who left in the late '90s. Uh, but there were all these stories between Checkets and Riley and the contract negotiations, and ultimately, not not to spoil the story too much, but Riley leaves Checkets in the dust and he moves down to Miami for for an even bigger deal, where he's still the team president today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recruited LeBron James to go there a bunch of years ago, so it's really a, a deeply reported 
book as well is really, really fun to read. And it is a, it is, if you squint a business story, because it's about the organization of the Knicks in the nineties and how they set this organization up for so much success and uh, what a great, what a great era it was. Absolutely. I mean, it's about, it's about the personnel. It's about working to people's strengths. It's about, you know, playing in the, in the right way for your category, you know, all, all of those, all of those ideas. And of course it's, it's, it's a great era of, of basketball. I did go YouTube some highlights reels from that time to, to get reacquainted. And I did see the big uh, game seven finals, Jordan dunking on Patrick Ewan. So even <laughs> in the end, couldn't stop that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this was the prime of Michael Jordan too, which is like uh, something you have to keep in mind when you're reading this book. Right. Well, it's a great read. That's uh, Blood in the Garden. And so the last book we're going to talk about is uh, fiction. And this is uh, a little bit different. Uh, and this is The Candy House, which is the latest release from Jennifer Egan. So Nick, tell us about this book a little bit. Candy House is the sequel to to Visit from the Goon Squad and has many of the characters from, from Goon Squad. Um, but what's cool is the Goon Squad book took place between the 1970s and the the early 2000s, and this book takes place between our present day in the 2020s and the future. And so she imagines this whole future that with, with the tech sector playing a big part of it. So she has mm-hmm. sort of a Facebook, Google style tech company that invents technology uh, that's almost uh, like uh, from a fantasy or a sci-fi novel. Um, and it just goes in lots of surprising directions, and it's a joy to read. And almost exactly the same way Goon Squad was. And it really is kind of a book that will just grip you and and not let you go. And even if it doesn't grip you to start with, like you're going to meet another new character in the next chapter too. And that's part of the fun of it is that you're, you just meet a whole world of people and then the themes seem to resonate so much with our current life. I just feel like, I just feel like she did it again. Like, I wasn't sure if she would be able to because uh, I love the Goon Squad book so much. And her other novels are great, too. I don't want to besmirch those. But this was really just uh, uh, like a wonderful surprise to, to land and land this year. Yeah, and she's such a great writer. It's so readable and enjoyable and just brings you in. And it's, you know, you don't need to have, have read the Goon Squad book. It, it, it is a sequel, but you don't. It's It's not building on it. It's there's some referencing there. So you could read this and then you could go back and, and read that. So it's a great read and one that's uh, a lot of fun for sitting on the beach this summer. Yeah, the way her style plays out is like you could almost uh, start anywhere. And then uh, yeah. it's, it's sort of a, it's like she's uh, like an abstract painter with, with uh, literature almost. It's, it's really fun. Fantastic. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for those recommendations. This has been really fun to talk about these books. Can you tell me, uh, what should we be looking for at, at Fortune? You got any interesting stuff coming up? What, what, keeping our eye yeah. on the news? <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, you should come to our website if you, uh, if you love accessible economic analysis. But we also do a lot of books coverage as well. We're doing more stuff about the, the future of work under our success vertical. And then uh, we're, we're going to have more coverage of other things too, including health and wellness. Um, mm-hmm. So we're really doing a lot of different things in a lot of different different areas. It's not just uh, Fortune magazine. It's not just news on the website. It's uh, it's a whole bunch uh, bunch of interesting mm-hmm. stuff for anyone 
anyone who has a job, anyone who is a manager or wants to be a manager someday. Mm-hmm. Find a lot to lots of interest you on our site. Mm-hmm. And I know you've got some great events too taking place throughout the year. We were able to capture some interviews at the Fortune Most Powerful Women's event last year, which was amazing. We're excited to uh, to do that again this this fall. Uh, so bringing people back together in person, I think we can we can do more of that as well. Yeah, we actually have a bunch of colleagues out at um, Fortune Brainstorm Tech Conference in Colorado right now. So mm-hmm. Fortune is, uh, we're hybrid, but that means a lot of in-person stuff too. Great. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining. Look forward to doing this again. Yeah, great to talk to you. That was Nick Lichtenberg, executive editor of News at Fortune Magazine, discussing which books he recommends to include in your summer reading. And starting next week, we'll be bringing you a three-part series all about marketing with conversations recorded at our Connections event that took place last June in Chicago. You'll hear from Sabrina Heiss, Vice President, Consumer Engagement at NBC Sports Group, to talk about how to build a next-generation marketing team. Lauren Carnell, Vice President of Marketing for the Memphis Grizzlies, discusses Title IX and the power of inclusive marketing. And last but not least is Dea Lawrence. She's the Chief Operating and Marketing Officer for Variety, and she's going to talk about how to build a trusted brand that adapts and grows with the times. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. <laughs>